This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Welcome, everyone. For those of you that I don't know, there are still a few people around the university that I haven't had a chance to meet, despite seven years of trying. Uh, my name is John Hennessy, and I'm delighted to be here and welcome everyone to the 2007 Tanner Lecture in Human Values. We're here today for the first of two lectures given by Glenn Lowry, the Merton P. Stoltz Professor of Social Sciences and Professor of Economics at Brown University. The topic of Professor Lowry's Tanner Lectures is racial stigma, mass incarceration, and human values. Certainly a topic quite appropriate for a lecture on human values. We've been pleased to offer the Tanner Lectures for many years at Stanford, and this lecture series gives us an opportunity to invite nationally and internationally acclaimed speakers whose work explores, and I quote from the original document, a range of values pertinent to the human condition. Obert, Obert Clark Tanner, who was an industrialist and a legal scholar, uh, who studied philosophy at Harvard and later at Stanford and served as a member of our faculty in religious studies, helped establish this lecture series. It is offered at eight other universities in addition to Stanford. Professor Tanner had hoped that the lectures will contribute to the intellectual and moral life of the university, and, see, and he saw them as a search for a better understanding of behavior and human values. As someone who has read a number of pieces by Glenn Lowry in the New York Times, I'm certainly looking forward to hearing from him in person. But before I introduce him, I want to take one minute to recognize the work of the members of the Program in Ethics and Society and the Tanner Lecture Steering Committee. Please join me in thanking them for helping to organize this year's lecture series. Thank you. As I said earlier, the purpose of the Tanner Lectures is to provide us with an opportunity to explore essential human questions, and Glenn Lowry has certainly done that throughout his career. Professor Lowry grew up on the south side of Chicago and earned his undergraduate degree in mathematics at Northwestern University. He received his PhD in economics from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. In his 1976 thesis, Essays in the Theory of Distribution of Income, he explored the idea of social capital. Two decades later, fellow economist Paul Krugman, who, by the way, was the 2002 Tanner Lecture here at Stanford, wrote in Slate, Lowry was, one of the, was, was and is a first-rate technical economist with a mathematical bent who ended up writing not about Euclidean spaces, but about the political economy of race. Reading Lowry's dissertation today, 22 years after he wrote it, is a depressing experience. Lowry argued pers persuasively that even a world of equal opportunity might, and I quote, perpetuate into the indefinite future the consequences of ethically unacceptable practices. Although Glenn Lowry and I come from two very different disciplines, economics and computer science, we share an odd characteristic. 
We have both received an award named for that famous Hungarian mathematician, John von Neumann. Now, despite this sharing, I'm sure all of you in the audience will be happy to hear that you're not going to hear from an old computer scientist this afternoon, but instead from a distinguished social scholar. It was during Glenn Lowry's time at Harvard that he became a well-known figure on the national stage. He consulted on public policy issues with leading Republicans and was highly sought after for his insights on the civil rights movement and affirmative action. He was widely viewed as one of the leading black conservative intellectuals of the time. By the late 1990s, however, his views on race were no longer aligned with many conservative positions. A New York Times Magazine profile by Adam Schatz in 2002 discusses the evolution and Lowry's views starting with his deep concern over the bell curve, the 1994 book by Charles Murray and Richard Herrnstein, and by D'Souza's book, The End of Racism, two years later. When the American Enterprise Institute supported D'Souza, Lowry resigned in protest. Schatz quotes this excerpt from Lowry's column entitled, What's Wrong with the Right?, which appeared in the American Enterprise. And I quote, liberals sought to heal the rift of our body politic engendered by the institution of chattel slavery and their goal of securing racial justice in America was and is a noble one. But I cannot say with confidence that conservatism is a movement, as a movement is much concerned to pursue that goal. That quote reminded me of something, so I went back and pulled out my little Abraham Lincoln quote book and sure enough, here's a quote by Abraham Lincoln arguing against the repeal of the Missouri Compromise in the Peoria debate. Lincoln says, stand with anybody that stands right. Stand with him when he is right and part with him when he goes wrong. Glenn Lowry has, offered, has authored hundreds of articles on social policy and racial inequality. His books include One by One, From the Inside Out, Essays and Reviews on Race and Responsibility in America, which won the American Book Award and the Christianity Today Book Award in 1995. Another book, The Anatomy of Racial Equality, published in, 19, in 2002, and Ethnicity, Social Mobility, and Public Policy, Comparing the U.S. and the United Kingdom, published in 2005. In the New York Times review of his award-winning one by one from the inside out, Richard Bernstein wrote, and I quote, if there is an underlying theme in these essays, it is that there is too much effort wasted in symbolic posturing, in adopting positions mainly to avoid giving comfort to the political or racial enemy. What the country needs, he maintains, is a hard, unsparing look at the central perplexing an emotion-laden problem of race and poverty in America. Professor Lowry's readership extends well beyond the academy. Over the past two decades, he has explored these and other issues in articles, essays, and reviews in publications such as Black Enterprise Magazine, The New Republic, Commentary, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Times, The Wilson Quarterly, and of course, The New York Times. One of the pleasures of reading Professor Lowry's works is the combination of intellectual insight with great clarity. 
In a New York Times article entitled, It's Futile to Put a Price on Slavery, for example, he addresses the question of whether reparations will help correct the wrongs of the past. His position in that article is that they will not, that this path is, quote, hopelessly insufficient. The foundation of his argument is built on a powerful analogy to the reconciliation commissions in South Africa. And he concludes that argument with the following simple insight. How would one ever begin to arrive at a sum for reparation payments? Professor Lowry's intellectual pursuits have taken various forms, but tying them all together is his desire to take on difficult problems, to deny the easy positions, to give them, as Bernstein wrote in his review, a hard, unsparing look. His work is both provocative and insightful, and has engendered intense criticism among his fellow academics and the greater public. So it is with great anticipation that I'm sure we all look forward to Professor Lowry's talk today. Tomorrow at 10 a.m., he will participate in a discussion seminar on this subject, led by our two colleagues, Larry Bobo and Pam Carlin. And later in the day at 5.30 p.m. tomorrow, he will address social identity and the ethics of punishment here in this room. Finally, on Friday morning, together with Harvard professor Shelby and Berkeley professor Vakan, he will lead a discussion seminar on his second lecture. I encourage you to attend as many of these as you can. Please join me now in welcoming Professor Glenn Lowry to Stanford. Thank you very much, President Hennessy, for that wonderful introduction. <clears throat> and I'm honored to have been invited to give these lectures. These are lectures on ethics, on human values. So I'll try without apology to reach beyond science and within the limits of my abilities to address deeper questions. Anything less, in my humble opinion, would be to evade my responsibilities to my country and to my people. Of course, as an economist and an academic, I also have professional responsibilities. This is an occasion for analysis, not sermonizing. The coin of the realm here is argument and evidence, not moral outrage or rhetorical fervor. This is hardly the time for me, quite obviously, of African descent to play a race card, that is, to claim some moral authority deriving from social identity, or to trade on insider status or to appeal to such sympathies in the audience as my social identity might provoke. Still, I am a black American male, standing before you to address the ethics of mass incarceration in this race-conscious, racially divided nation. As it happens, I have passed through the courtroom and the jailhouse on my way to this distinguished podium. I have sat in the visitor's room at a state prison and uh, have sat in the visitor's room at a state prison. I have known personally and intimately men and women who lived their entire lives with one foot to either side of the law. And in my mind's eye, I can envision voiceless and despairing people who would hope that I might represent them on this occasion. 
I know that these revelations may discredit me in some quarters. Some may assume that I'm siding with the thug and not with the victims of senseless violence. Truth be told, some might assume that no matter what I say here. So deeply entrenched is this binary opposition in American public consciousness. So I will not even bother to refute or deny the charge. For better or for worse, my racial identity is not irrelevant here. Neither is it irrelevant to a consideration of the ethics of mass punishment that the millions now in custody and under state supervision are drawn disproportionately from the ranks of the black and the brown. There can be no need to justify injecting race into this discourse. Our prisons are the most race conscious public institutions that we have. No big city police officer is colorblind, nor arguably can any afford to be. Crime and punishment in America have a color. Just turn on a television set or open a magazine or listen carefully to the rhetoric of a political campaign. And you will see what I mean. Some radical critics even liken today's prison boom to the slavery of yesteryear. One can agree or disagree with that sentiment, but what cannot be denied is that this society, as in other societies, in this society, order is maintained by the threat and the use of force. We enjoy our good lives only because we are shielded by the forces of law and order upon which we rely to keep the unruly at bay. Yet in this society, virtually unlike any other, those bearing the heavy burden of order enforcement belong vastly disproportionately to a racially defined and historically marginalized subset of the population. Given all of this, what is a self-respecting social scientist to do? Science may be necessary, but it is certainly insufficient here. Consider what I take to be a first order point. No cost benefit analysis of our world historic prison buildup over the last 35 years is possible without specifying how one should reckon in the calculation the pain being imposed on the persons imprisoned and their families and their communities. This has not, of course, stopped many writers from pronouncing on the benefits and cost of incarceration without bothering to address that fundamental question. How to value this aspect of policy is, to my mind, a salient ethical issue. Punishment politics, it seems to me, invariably discounts the humanity of the thieves, the drug sellers and prostitutes and rapists, and yes, of those whom we unceremoniously put to death. It gives insufficient weight to the welfare, to the humanity of those people knitted together with offenders in networks of social and psychic affiliation. It should be clear that social science has no answers for the question of what weight to put on a thug's well-being or on that of his wife or his daughter and son. Nor can science tell us how much additional cost borne by the offending class can be justified in order to obtain a given increment in security of life and property or in peace of mind for the rest of us. To illustrate, consider recent discussion of the ethics of racial profiling. The obvious cost-benefit take on that problem goes as follows. With screening resources being limited, an agent seeking to detect an unobserved hazard can do so more efficiently by making use of any readily available information that correlates with the presence of the hazard. If it is known that dangerous people are drawn disproportionately from a group with members who look a certain way, Designing a screening process in light of that knowledge eases the monitoring problem. Some have argued that this is morally acceptable. It's morally acceptable to do this when the stakes are high enough uh, and the alternatives limited, even if this cost may fall disproportionately on a disadvantaged group. 
A social scientist sees easily how the analysis might go, and yet I find these arguments deeply unsatisfactory. When we undertake to classify people categorically and to treat them differently based on this categorization, we do more than simply solve a resource allocation problem. We also commit an expressive act, declaring how we are to look upon and relate to one another. It seems to me that the decision as to whether or not one wants to make such a statement is often the whole ballgame. And yet, how should the costs and benefits of such constitutive, expressive public actions be reckoned? Institutional arrangements for dealing with criminal offenders in the United States have evolved to serve expressive as well as instrumental ends. We have wanted to send a message and have done so with a vengeance. In the process, we've created facts. We've constituted social relations between elements in the polity. We have answered the question, who is to blame for the maladies which beset our troubled civilization? We have constructed a national narrative. We have created scapegoats, indulged our need to feel virtuous about ourselves, and assuaged our fears. We have met the enemy, and the enemy is them. In the midst of this dramaturgy, unavoidably so in America, lurks a potent racial subplot. Deciding how citizens of varied social rank within a common polity ought to relate to one another is a more fundamental consideration than is deciding which course of action is most efficient. The question of relationship, the issue of solidarity, the challenge of deciding who belongs to the body politic and who deserves exclusion, these are philosophical concerns of the highest order. It makes about as much sense to speak of the benefits and cost of citizens relating to one another this way rather than that as it does to speak of the benefits and the cost of dying for one's country. This, I regret to report, has not stopped some social sciences from speaking in precisely that way. Still, in my humble opinion, when the question becomes what manner of people are we Americans, it is utterly foolish, worse, it is morally dangerous to look to science for an answer. Put differently, a decent society will on occasion elect to eschew the efficient course of action for the simple reason that to follow it would be to act as though we were not the people we have determined ourselves to be. Echoing Kant, to act in a way that is contrary to calculated interests may be the only way to give evidence of our decency. In any event, the cost-benefit calculus is surely insufficient to the prescriptive task here. Now, a critic will come along and say, ah, but you have simply failed fully to account for all of the costs and benefits. Doing so allows value commitments to be taken into account. I understand this argument, but I reject it. Occasions will arise where, in the nature of the case, such a modified accounting is impossible in principle. It strikes me that assessing the propriety of creating a racially defined pariah class in the middle of our great cities at the start of the 21st century presents us with just such a case. But then, if social science is insufficient here, where ought we look for guidance? My answer is that we ought to look to social philosophy and to history. Guided by a reasoned assessment of first principles, such as that undertaken by John Rawls in his lifelong project, and grounded in a narrative interpretation of our essential national character, such as that exemplified by Michael Walzer in his work on interpretation and social criticism, we ought to ask ourselves two questions. Just what manner of people are we Americans, and what then must we do? That's all well and good, Professor Lowry, but what has race got to do with any of this? 
I can almost hear the perennial American question coming in from my right with the toe-tapping impatience I'm so used to getting these days. My answer is that only someone as willfully blind to our history as was the U.S. Supreme Court in its 1987 decision in the case of McCleskey versus Kemp, which upheld the constitutionality of capital punishment in the face of overwhelming evidence that its application in the state of Georgia had reflected blatant racial bias, could even ask such a question in the first place. Let me remind you of what the court said in that case, and I'm going to quote here. McCleskey, from a source, McCleskey drew on a statistical study, I'm quoting from Randall Kennedy, performed by Professor David C. Baldus and colleagues that demonstrated disparities in the imposition of the death sentence in Georgia based primarily on the race of mur the murder victims, focusing on more than 2,000 Georgia murder cases during the 1970s. The Baldus study demonstrated that the death sentence was imposed in 22% of the cases involving black defendants and white victims, 8% of the cases involving white defendants and white victims, 1% of the cases involving black defendants and black victims, and 3% of the cases involving white defendants and black victims. Even after accounting for 39 non-racial variables, I continue to quote, the study found that defendants charged with killing white victims were 4.3 times as likely to receive a death sentence as defendants charged with killing blacks. Close quote. Now, as Randall Kennedy reports in his impressive study, Race, Crime, and the Law, and I quote again, Despite this systematic evidence, the U.S. Supreme Court voted five to four to uphold McCleskey's death sentence. In its majority opinion, the court dismissed the Baldus study as indicating a discrepancy that only appeared to correlate with race. Now, according to the court's opinion, apparent disparities in sentence, the court said, are an inevitable part of our criminal justice system. Where the discretion that is fundamental to our criminal process is involved, we decline to assume that what is unexplained is invidious. We hold that the Baldus study does not demonstrate a constitutionally significant risk of racial bias affecting the Georgia Capital Sentencing Project, to which Justice Antonin Scalia added on his own this, quote, the unconscious operation of irrational sympathies and antipathies, including race, upon jury decisions, and hence prosecutorial decisions, is real, acknowledged in the decisions of this court, and ineradicable, close quote. Our racial history in this country casts a long shadow, even to this day influencing the deliberations of jurors in capital cases. But are its effects genuinely ineradicable, as Justice Scalia would have it? Are they really of no contemporary ethical significance? In his influential study, Slavery and Social Death, historical sociologist Orlando Patterson argues that one cannot understand slavery without grasping the importance of honor more than an institution allowing property and people, slavery is for Patterson, quote, the permanent violent domination of natally alienated and generally dishonored persons, close quote. He argues that the hierarchy of social standing, masters over slaves, reinforced by ritual and culture, is what distinguishes slavery from other systems of forced labor. In the American context, obviously, the rituals and customs that supported this hierarchical order the system of taken-for-granted meanings that made possible an adherence to high enlightenment ideals in the midst of widespread human bondage came to be closely intertwined in both the popular and the elite culture with ideas about race. As such, dishonor, shown by Patterson, to be a general and defining feature of slavery became, in the American case at hand, inseparable from the social meaning of race. So, 
My historical interpretive syllogism is this. In general, slaves are always dishonored persons, profoundly so. In the experience of the United States, slavery was a thoroughly racial institution. Therefore, the social meaning of race emergent in American political culture at mid-19th century was closely connected with the slave's dishonorable status. Now true, that was a long time ago. Yet, I hold that the remnants of this ignoble history are still discernible in the nation's present-day public culture. Moreover, I wish to suggest that if with Patterson we can see in American slavery not merely a legal order, not merely a convention about law and ownership, but also a superstructure of justifying ideas, defining and legitimating an order, a racial hierarchy, then we should also be able to see that determination of the slave's legal subordination could in itself never be sufficient to make slaves or their progeny into full members of society. The racial dishonor of the former slaves and their descendants, historically engendered and culturally reinforced, would have also to be overcome. I claim that an honest assessment of American politics in this post-civil rights era, our debates about welfare, crime, schools, jobs, taxes, housing, test scores, diversity, urban policy, and much more, reveals the lingering effects of this historically engendered dishonor. The images that uh, I'm not going to show you, or maybe I am. Images like this. Or this, that's the Lions Club in the 20th century. Or this, those are profoundly dishonored persons who was someone's property in South Carolina in 1856. Or this, the great Al Jolson, 20th century entertainment in America. These images, I think, underscore the point that I'm trying to make. I'm not making this stuff up, is what I'm saying. <clears throat> By racial dishonor, I mean something specific. An entrenched, if inchoate, presumption of inferiority, of moral inadequacy, of unfitness for intimacy, of intellectual incapacity, harbored by observing agents when they regard, at least some of, the racially marked subjects. So we have come from a history of racial slavery and institutionalized racial subordination, and the principal venue in which the legacy of that history remains vividly apparent is in the realm of punishment. We are becoming a nation of jailers, and racist jailers at that. We must ask, in light of our history, whether this is the nation we want to be. And deciding not, we must then try to do something about it. Now, as we all know, the end of slavery did not usher in an era of democratic equality for black Americans. Yet another century was to pass before a national commitment to pursue that goal could be achieved. And even now, meaningful civic exclusion ex excludes many millions of American citizens who are recognizably of African descent. What does this say about the character of our civic culture, about the quality of this American civilization as we enter a new century? Strong convergence towards social and economic equality for blacks pretty much ceased in the 1970s. The gap has narrowed little since then. It's worth taking a moment to review the facts. Persistence of racial inequality in America, the stubborn durability of black subordinate position is revealed in numerous social indicators. The incomes available to the households where children are raised. The relative wealth holdings 
of families. The gap in academic achievement between racial groups. The employment rates of adult uh, workers. That's lines for blacks at the bottom. The attainment of educational objectives. What was the percentage of college graduates by race over the period of time I'm interested in? <clears throat> True enough, white attitudes toward blacks today are not what they were at the end of slavery or in the 1930s. Neither is black marginalization nearly as severe. I'm not trying to say that no progress has been made. Please do not dis misunderstand. De jure, segregation is dead. Hallelujah. The open violence once used to enforce it has all but disappeared. We have made great progress. Even so, as work over the years by Larry Bobo and his colleagues has demonstrated, a different, more subtle racial bias is discernible than the attitude of white, white Americans. New sources of social and political marginalization of black people have emerged since the end of the civil rights era. State-sanctioned violence continues to ravage the lives of poor blacks and to impede their participation in our common national life. Contempt for young black men remains abroad in the land, and a new enthusiasm for their debasement has gripped us. I refer here to the devastating impact on the lives of millions of poor black Americans, and of course, not only they, that is due to the rise of the mass incarceration state. Ah, but this is different. This is different, a critic might argue. Equality before the law was never meant to imply freedom from the constraint of law. So long as laws are enforced without racial bias, the mere fact of some disparity in the incidence of incarceration is in no way indicative of a new anti-black animus, my hypothetical critic might continue. As I see it, as I see it, an argument more or less of that form underlies the passivity, even the enthusiasm, with which so many informed Americans have greeted these new developments. Many Americans who profess to love liberty, who are proud of the progress we have made on the civil rights front, upon learning about the rising tide of black imprisonment, must console themselves with just such an argument. A distinguished philosopher friend of mine, an ethicist no less, who shall remain nameless here, once said to me, Glenn, I don't understand why you continue to complain about there being so many black men in prison. When people fall sick, more hospitals are built. Yet nobody thinks that the mere fact of an increase in hospitalization signals some kind of social failure. So too would blacks in prisons do a crime, whatever your race, and you are justly required to do the time. All of this is a piece with an increasingly common view about the woeful tragedy now playing itself out amongst the black poor, which might be paraphrased as follows. Blacks may languish, but this is their own fault. There's work available in the cities. If the immigrants can find it, why not the blacks? If the blacks would marry, if they would embrace the responsibilities of their own freedom, if they would cease to see themselves so much as victims, if they would just stop their law-breaking, then their prospects would brighten. I find this line of argumentation, as you'll learn from me over the next two nights, to be shockingly ahistorical, a short-sighted and, if you will, ethically challenged response to what is one of the great social transformations of our time. Yet arguments of this kind emerge naturally from certain ideas about personal responsibility, personal morality, and social causation that are now abroad in the land. And I have to tell you, I know how seductive this worldview can be. I once espoused it myself. I made a fine public career using arguments just of that kind. 
My intent in these lectures is to correct the record and to set forth and defend an alternative view of the matter. <clears throat> Permit me now to offer a summary of my overarching argument. In this lecture and the next, I will argue with as much passion as I can muster, for which I offer no apology. Somebody has to speak for the juveniles locked in a Florida penitentiary for life without the possibility of parole, for the nonviolent drug offenders serving interminable sentences in supermax hell holes with no human contact for years on end, for AIDS victims cuffed to their bunks and dying of medical neglect in a quarantined Alabama prison? If not me, who? If not now, when? I'm going to argue with as much passion as I can muster that racially disparate incidents of this nature, the racially disparate incidents of this massive punitive structure, is when viewed in historical context patently unjust and that this situation weakens the legitimacy of the American political regime, appropriately so, in the eyes of many of its citizens and in the eyes of a great many people throughout the world who see our social practice in light of our racial history as simply barbaric. And that some of these people happen to be French does not make them wrong. <laughs> in what remains of this first lecture, I will present a concise, dense, and brutal history of the rise of class and race, the race-class punishment nexus since the 1960s, covering the basic facts concerning incarceration rates, how the incidence of punishment varies by social location, the social and epidemiological harm that punishment inflicts on the communities from which the offenders come and to which they return, and the connection of this development to the rhetoric of social discipline writ large, rhetoric about dependency, personal responsibility, social hygiene, and punishment as the reclamation of public order. In doing this, I hope to, uh, to uh, encourage some reflection about what it means to create institutions whose business is the infliction of harm on some citizens at the behest of other citizens, thereby creating durable incentives for the maintenance and expansion of punishment as a way of life, a seemingly entrenched practice that mirrors in a sick fashion the old conservative critique of welfare as a way of life. I wish to suggest that history, not theory, not abstract debates about human values that live only within the academy, history is presenting us with a nightmare scenario, one that goes to the heart of the contradictions of a liberal democratic society that has been poisoned by race. Now, I have a problem here. My recitation of the brutal facts about punishment in today's America may sound to some like a primal scream of rage at this monstrous social machine that is grinding poor black communities to dust. And as I have already indicated, these facts do incline me to cry out in despair. But I wish not to be dismissed as merely venting anger at the consequences of the failures of my co-racialists. I very much wish to be taken seriously in analytical and not only existential terms. So I want you to know that the second of these lectures sets, for, uh, sets out for a hardcore analysis of the moral problem we face, the problem of which will be to suggest, the burden of my, I should say, the burden of which will be to suggest that we law-abiding middle-class Americans are the beneficiaries of a system of suffering rooted in violence meted out at our request. This is a problem that we cannot avoid. We cannot pretend that there are more important problems in our society, that this circumstance is the necessary solution to some other more pressing problem. Unless, that is, we are also prepared to say that we have turned our backs on the ideas of equality of civil status for all citizens 
and all principles of social justice. Unless we are willing to cast ourselves as a society that creates criminogenic conditions in the center of our cities for some of its members, and then acts out rituals of punishment as if engaged in some awful form of human sacrifice. I will argue that we will not have solved our historic moral problems of unequal citizenship for the descendants of slaves, which have existed for now a century and a half after the emancipation, and which are built into the social, economic, and political structure of the country, civil rights reforms to the contrary notwithstanding, unless and until we come far closer than we are now to achieving equality of life chances, honor, and public standing for black Americans. I will be talking about substantive racial justice, not about procedural racial neutrality. Substantive racial justice was not achieved in 1954 with Brown or in 1964-65 with the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act, and it eludes us yet today. I will suggest that the rise of the mass imprisonment state opens a new front in the struggle for historic justice. It reflects both explicit and tacit racism. That is, this policy has sometimes been popular because, and sometimes despite, it having a disproportionately adverse impact on blacks and others. I know that this is not only about blacks. I will suggest that all of this has occurred when feasible alternative policies existed and were known to exist that might have produced much less harm even as the perfectly legitimate objective of the maintenance of order and the security of person was being pursued. I will suggest that this punishment policy complex has become a principal way in which racial hierarchy is reproduced in our society. And I will insist that this matter requires and deserves the concerted attention of the nation's policymakers. In a rush to declare ourselves healed of the disease of racism, which had been festering for a century after the emancipation, in a hurry to celebrate having solved Gunnar Myrdal's American dilemma, we have embraced what the criminologist Michael Tonry calls a policy of malign neglect. And in doing so, as a society, we have stumbled more or less wittingly into a god-awful cul-de-sac. I will claim that the connection of this apparatus to the history of racial degradation and subordination in our country, lynching, minstrelsy, segregation, ghettoization, is virtually self-evident, and that the racial subtext of our law and order political discourse over the last three decades has been palpable. So that's where I'm going. Let's look back for a moment. Violent crime was a real and is a real problem. It peaked in the early 1990s and began what would prove to be a long, precipitous decline. But no one saw this coming. Crime was a real problem two decades, two decades ago, a problem that policymakers were concerned to address and concerned to be seen to be addressing. For many observers, even liberal ones, a mass incarceration state did not look like something to be feared. To be sure, there were detractors. But fighting crime and drugs was popular. It reflected the common wisdom and good sense of decent, ordinary Americans. Only someone who had never recovered from the 1960s would have had difficulty seeing this. Such was the conventional wisdom of the time. Fighting the war on crime was a bipartisan policy. It was part of Bill Clinton's New Democrat philosophy. Certainly his credible promise to do so, a promise on which he delivered with a vengeance, helped to get him elected and re-elected to the presidency. 
Consider how the crime situation must have appeared to the average American, say, 20, 25 years ago. Two decades ago, it is fair to say, America was awash in violent crime. Take the city of New Haven, Connecticut, just as a concrete example. Between 1960 and 1990, the number of murders in the city rose from 6 to 31. The number of rapes in New Haven, Connecticut went from 4 in 1960 to 168 in 1980. The number of robberies in the home of Yale University rose from 16 to 1,784 over that three-decade period. All of this happened while the city's population declined by 14%. Things were even worse in the central cities. For instance, in 1990, two-fifths of all the violent crime that was committed in the state of Pennsylvania occurred in the city of Philadelphia, which had only one-seventh of the population. Homicide victimization rates spiked for young black males caught up in the crack wars in the 1980s. This was a time when drive-by shootings and drug deals gone violently bad were common fare on the local news, when the war on drugs was taken to a new level and when gangster rap was born. In 1990, most observers thought the situation could only get worse. Dire forecasts were being bandied about, announcing the coming of a new kind of criminal, the super predator. Extrapolating trends and offending rates and consulting the demographic tables, scholars and pundits warned that we had better prepare ourselves for an onslaught, and so we did. Yet the onslaught never came. Instead, the plague subsided, and yes, punishment policy no doubt contributed to this decline, but even the most generous estimates suggest that no more than one quarter of the drop in crime over the course of the 1990s can be attributed to rising incarceration. Violent and property crime rates fell along with the unemployment rate throughout the years of the Clinton presidency. By the end of the decade, the stock market was way up. Rudy Giuliani, not David Dinkins, was mayor of New York City. Zero tolerance policing was raising the quality of life there and elsewhere, or so at least was the view from the Upper West Side. Things were a bit more complicated in East New York or the South Bronx or in Bedford-Stuyvesant. In any event, the prison boom, stoked by fear of victimization, by political opportunism and by the need for a policy response to a very real social problem, continued its unrelenting march. Today, 15 years after crime peaked, the American prison system has become a leviathan unmatched in human history. Never has a supposedly free country denied basic liberty to so many of its citizens. As of December 2006, some two and one quarter million persons were under lock and key in the nearly 5,000 prisons and jails that are scattered like an archipelago across America's urban and rural landscapes. Consider that a black male resident of the state of California is more likely to go to a state prison than to a state college. Or consider that more Americans are employed in the corrections sector than belong to the combined workforces of General Motors, Ford, and Walmart put together, the three biggest corporate employers in the country. According to a report of the International Center for Prison Studies in London, there were some nine million prisoners in the world as of February of 2005. With 5% of the world's population, the United States houses 25% of the world's inmates. The U.S. incarceration rate of 714 persons per 100,000 residents is far greater than our nearest competitor, the Bahamas, Belarus, and Russia, each in prison at the rate of 530 per 100,000. 
other industrial democracies, some of them with big crime problems as big as our own, are less punitive than we by an order of magnitude. The U.S. Incorporate, uh, incarcerates 6.2 times the rate for Canada, 7.8 times the rate for France, 12.3 times the rate for Japan. A huge institutional expansion has occurred. Coercive state power has been deployed internally on a massive scale. I'm not making this up. This is not my opinion. I'm simply describing institutional transformation of an order and on a scale that is stunning, that is astounding, that ought to command our attention. How could it possibly go unremarked? Whatever the ethical argument, how could it go unremarked? How could we just sit idly and have it happen? Unremarked. A huge institutional transformation has occurred. Coercive state power, I repeat, is now being deployed in our country internally on a massive scale. And it's costing us a veritable fortune. Spending on law enforcement and corrections at all levels of government now totals roughly a fifth of a trillion dollars a year. In constant dollars, this spending has more than quadrupled in a quarter century. The table uh, uh, that's now being displayed indicates how the spending breaks down by function. Now I want to talk for a minute about what prison is. Prison, something that we probably don't know much about, thankfully. But let us not look away from what a prison is. A prison. The first American jail of note built by the Quakers of Philadelphia's Wal on Philadelphia's Walnut Street was believed by many forward-looking observers, particularly Europeans, to be a humane alternative to corporal punishment. Observing such progress in the science of punishment was a principal impetus for the sojourn of the French nobleman Alexis de Tocqueville on this side of the Atlantic in the early 19th century, immortalized in his 1835 classic, Democracy in America. Tocqueville, in his wildest imaginings, could never have foreseen the massive prison industrial complex that would emerge in our freedom-loving land. Although, were he somehow to have been made aware of future developments, he would likely have predicted that the descendants of slaves would predominate amongst those held captive. Today's American prison, perhaps better described as a warehouse than a house of correction, is something that no humane observer could describe as progressive. And yet, the scope and severity of punishment is not simply tolerated here, it is often applauded by the governing majority. Thus, one finds a Gallup organization report on this issue based on nationwide polling conducted in February of 2004 that is revealingly entitled, Public on Justice System, Fair but Still Too Soft. And so it is that no sensible politician today can allow himself to be depicted as soft on crime or as pro-criminal. America's exceptional position in matters of pertaining to punishment is not simply a matter of scale. By any humane international standard, prisons in the United States are god-awful places, total institutions, as Irving Goffman uh, called them, where brutality and human degradation are the coin of the realm. Thus, confronting confinement, a report released last year from the Commission on Safety and Abuse in America's Prisons, of which uh, the former Attorney General Nicholas Katzenbach was one of the authors, finds that our penal institutions are dangerously overcrowded, that they rely too much on physical isolation to manage the behavior of inmates, which the commission found can have lasting adverse effects on the prisoner's mental health, 
and that they are horribly, unnecessarily violent. The report estimates that one and one half million people annually are released from prisons and jails with life-threatening infectious diseases. Released, that is to say, back amongst us. HIV, drug-resistant staph infections, hepatitis C, tuberculosis, and that at least one out of every six prisoners, I'm talking about 350,000 souls on a given day, are seriously mentally ill. What is more, prisoners' ability to challenge these horrid conditions in the federal courts has been stymied by the so-called Prison Litigation Reform Act of 1996, which, as was surely the congressional intent, has succeeded in reducing the number of inmates able to file civil rights cases about conditions inside of prisons by half. Here, for your information, are a few graphic illustrations drawn more or less at random from recent headlines of the savage war of all against all character of life inside American prisons. I'm sorry to belabor the point, but I really think we need to listen to this. Roderick Johnson, a former inmate at the Alfred Unit, located in Wichita County, Texas, belonged to a gang called the Gangster Disciples, but not in the usual sense, the gang's former number two man explained to a federal court. When asked by one of Mr. Johnson's lawyers, quote, was Mr. Johnson considered a member of the Gangster Disciples? The witness, an imposing black man in prison garb and shackles, replied, quote, nope. What was he considered? The lawyer continued. Property, came the reply, meaning that the gang members could rent, could rape Mr. Johnson at will. They could also rent him out for sex, and they did so daily. A purchased rape, the witness testified in a federal court, cost from three to seven dollars. Roderick Johnson says that the abuse went on for 18 months. Item. About 9,700 American prisoners are serving life sentences for crimes they committed before they could vote, before they could serve on a jury or gamble in a casino, in short, before they turned 18. More than a fifth of these, 2,200 juvenile offenders, are serving sentences for life without the possibility of parole. Now, theoretically, the sentence of life without parole is available for juvenile criminals in about a dozen countries. But the United States is only one of a handful of countries that uh, the Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International report could find who actually used it. Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International found juveniles serving life sentences without the possibility for, for parole in only three other countries. Israel had seven. South Africa has four. Tanzania, one. And yet there are 270 ju juvenile offenders consigned to prison for life without the possibility of parole in the state of Florida alone. Item. From Indiana and Washington to Alabama and Arizona, I'm quoting, chain gangs are back. Both state prisons and county jails are putting prisoners in chains and distinctive uniforms and forcing them to clear trash from roadways and to cut weeds. In Wisconsin, the chain gang uh, have to wear 50,000-volt uh, 50, stun belts. These experiments in public torment often are initiated at the county level where elected publicity-seeking sheriffs control the jail system, and they are but cheap political theater. The actual amount of work performed by chain gangs is of minimal economic value, but the normalization of the chain gang spectacle inflates a symbolic economy of revenge. Item. AIDS wasting, a condition largely eradicated since the early years of the AIDS epidemic, remains a major problem in limestone, 
Alabama's segregated prison for inmates with AIDS. Undernourished patients were left literally to waste away. The overwhelming majority of the men were severely malnourished. Most had not received what would be considered even remotely adequate nutrition or vitamin supplementation, especially for a person with a profoundly compromised immune system. Limestone's nearly non-existent medical system resulted in years of needless dying and suffering, said a, uh, uh, a court-appointed medical examiner, Dr. Stephen Tabbitt, quote, the conditions at Limestone are unsafe for both the incarcerated and for the staff. There's a sense of hopelessness and helplessness about the patients at Limestone to a degree that I have not witnessed, close quote. Item, by denying the vote to felons, the average state disenfranchises 2.4% of its voting age population, but 8.4% of its voting age blacks. In 14 states, the share of blacks stripped of the vote exceeds 10%. In five states, it exceeds 20%. Felony disenfranchisement laws keep nearly one in seven black men from voting nationwide. Prisons. Princeton sociologist Bruce Western's excellent recent book, Punishment and Inequality in America, provides a useful survey of the facts regarding the scope, the nature, and the consequences of contemporary imprisonment. One third of inmates in state prisons are violent criminals, but the other two thirds are not. <clears throat> they are property and drug offenders mostly. On average, state inmates have fewer than 11 years of schooling. African Americans and Hispanics account for about two thirds of state prison populations. The extent of racial disparity in imprisonment rates is greater than in any other major arena of American social life. At eight to one, the black to white ratio of incarceration rates dwarfs the two to one ratio of unemployment rates, the three to one ratio of non-marital childbearing, the two to one black white ratio of infant mortality rates, or the one to five ratio of net worth. Whereas three out of 200 whites are incarcerated, were in 2000, the rate for young blacks was one in nine. More black male high school dropouts are incarcerated than belong to unions or are enrolled in social welfare programs combined. Evidently, the primary contact between black American adult men of a certain age and the American state is via the police and the penal apparatus. As the table now being displayed makes clear, among black male high school dropouts, ages 20 to 40, a third were under lock and key on a given day in 2000, while fewer than 3% belonged to unions and less than one quarter were enrolled in any kind of social program. Where the state meets these men is in the jail. The coercive aspect of government is the most salient feature of their experience of the public sector. Western uh, uses data from several sources to estimate the nearly, to estimate that nearly 60% of black male dropouts born between 1965 and 1969 were sent to jail or prison at least once before they reached the age of 35. For these men and the families and communities with which they are associated, the adverse effects of incarceration will extend beyond their stay behind bars. This horrid situation is a product of our recent history as that table that's up right now shows you Looking at two birth cohorts of black and white men uh, is a way of trying to capture, if crudely, uh, the disparate impact by race and by class of the post-1980 prison boom on the life experience of young American men. 
The first cohort of men is born between 1945 and 1949, just after World War II. That was my cohort. These individuals reached their mid-30s by 1970, before the rapid increase in imprisonment. The second cohort was born during the Vietnam War from 1965 to 1969 and reached their mid-30s during the height of the prison boom. Notice that the aggregate risk of imprisonment is twice as great in the later cohort, 2.9% overall versus 1.4%. Moreover, one can see from the table that the experience of incarceration for poorly educated black men is estimated to be four times more prevalent in the later than in the earlier cohort, 58.9% for the cohort born 65 to 69 versus 17.1% of poorly educated black men who were born in my birth cohort, 1945 to 1949. The massive scale of this sh policy shift is stunning. To repeat, there are nearly three-fifths chance, there's a nearly three-fifths chance that a black male with less than a high school diploma born between 1965 and 1969 will have gone to prison or jail at least once prior to reaching the age of 35. Uh, sociologist Bruce Western and his uh, colleague uh, Pettit uh, argue that passage to adulthood means going through a sequence of ordered stages, each affecting a person's life trajectory long after the early transitions are completed. To arrive at the status of a mature and functioning adult, an individual moves from school to work, to marriage, to establishing a home, to parenthood. Those who fail to secure the, mark the markers of adulthood are more likely to lapse into criminal behavior, and those who fall into crime end up, more often than not, in prison. Their main point, though, is that the experience of prison feeds back to affect the life course. Once one has been sent to prison, it's a whole new ballgame for the rest of one's life. The evidence of prison affecting subsequent life chances is considerable and impressive. This table that I'm showing you, while not definitive, reproduces some work from Bruce Western. It's admittedly crude, but I believe it's suggestive in estimating the impact of imprisonment on subsequent labor market outcomes. As you can see there, hourly wages of incarcerated men are 10% lower after prison than before. The weeks worked per year of all imprisoned men are down by a third or more after release as compared with prior to their incarceration. Now, consider that nearly 60% of black male high school dropouts born in the late 1960s who will have been imprisoned before their, will have been imprisoned before their 40th year. Consider them. For these men, their link to family has been disrupted. Their subsequent work lives will be diminished. Their voting rights are often permanently revoked. They will suffer quite literally a civic excommunication from American democracy. It's no exaggeration to say that, given our zeal for social discipline, these men will be consigned to a permanent non-white male nether caste. And yet, since these men, whatever their shortcomings, have emotional and sexual and family needs, including the need to be fathers and lovers and husbands, we will have created a biopolitical situation where the children of this nether caste are likely themselves to join a new generation of untouchables. In other words, social discipline via law and order, wars against crime and against drugs, must generate a race-based nether caste so long as blackness is seen as a biopolitical site of disorder that is to be met with force and incarceration as the primary instrument of social hygiene. Now, I'm aware that this sounds hyperbolic. I know that and that a listener may be unsettled by such vituperation on so august an occasion as this. 
I assure you, however, that this reading of the situation is the product of my sober reflections upon being acquainted with the facts. I am myself somewhat unsettled by the visceral reactions that it has evoked in me. Nor is it merely the scope of the mass imprisonment state that has expanded so impressively. The ideas underlying the doing of criminal justice, the ideas, the superstructure of justification and rationalization have also undergone a sea change and new institutional forms have emerged. Alongside bureaus of policing and imprisonment, what David Garland, the sociologist, calls a, quote, new apparatus of prevention and security, close quote, has arisen. This expanding sector is made up of, quoting Garland again, crime prevention organizations, public-private partnerships, community policing arrangements, and multi-agency working practices that link together the different authorities whose activities bear on the problem of crime and security. This sector consists mainly of networks and coordinating practices, local authority panels, working groups, multi-agency forums, so-called business improvement districts, and various action committees whose primary task is to link up the activities of existing actors and agencies and direct their efforts toward crime reduction and social hygiene. Garland is quite explicit and quite exercised about the function of these new developments to keep them away from us. Quoting him again, the prison is used today as a kind of reservation, a quarantine zone in which purportedly dangerous individuals are segregated in the name of public safety. I remind you, two-thirds of the people held in state prisons today are not violent offenders. They haven't raped. They haven't robbed. They haven't assaulted. They haven't murdered. They've been dealing dope. Or stealing to support their habits. We've got choices, is what I'm saying to you people as an aside, about how we manage such people. I am not saying they don't constitute a problem. I'm saying we have a decision to make about how we're going to manage them. And when the only instrumentality that we can see is to project violent state power as a means of control over their physical being, it's telling us something about us. This, ladies and gentlemen, is about us. I'm talking about the American character here, not about the pathological character of a thug. I'm talking about us. Let me just go on quoting Garland, who is also a bit exercised, but perhaps not so much as I. String of work camps and prisons strung out across a vast country housing millions of people drawn mainly from classes and racial groups that are seen as politically and economically problematic. If they were, after all, our children, our children, we might be able to find a different way of dealing with this problem. <clears throat> the border between prison and community, Garland argues, is, quote, heavily patrolled and carefully monitored prevent leaking from one to the other. Those offenders who are released into the community are subject to ever tighter control and often return to custody for violation of their conditions of release. Many of these parolees and ex-convicts are never really free in that they continue to be closely monitored and never really live a normal life. Under this brave new security, that was close quote, under this brave new security dispensation, relations between the media, the politicians, and the public have also been transformed. High profile cases get excessive media attention and engender public outrage. Some predator does an awful thing to an innocent. The system has failed yet again, allowing a perpetrator, Willie Horton, out on furlough, 
releasing an apparently guilty defendant because the convicting evidence was gathered in violation of his rights, giving yet another example of revolving door justice. This is what those Clint Eastwood films that were so wildly popular in the 1970s, the Dirty Harry movies, was all about. The public attention to these cases is typically out of all proportion to their actual frequency of occurrence. And yet laws, three strikes and you're out, violent sexual predator laws, and political careers are made on the basis of the public's visceral, fear-driven reaction to the publicity given such events. In such a way as this, by accretion, has the edifice of this system been built? And despite signs that the horrid nature of this shift is being more widely recognized today, the slow-moving behemoth of a system is unlikely now to be turned on a dime. <clears throat> the irony is that all of this has happened while crime rates have been falling sharply. The crime situation today is not what it was 20 years ago. As I say, the irony is that although crime rates are now quite low by historical standards, imprison continues it upward, imprisonment continues its upward march. But it, it, now, now, it can't but be true that the massive increase in incarceration has helped depress crime rates. The question is by how much, and as I've said, estimates of the share of the 1990s fall in violent crime attributable to the prison boom range from a low of 5% to a high of 25%. That was Steve Levitt, the economist estimate in one of his papers. Whatever the case, analysts of all political stripes now agree that we have long since passed into the zone of diminishing returns. The conservative analyst John DiUlio, who in the early 1990s in the Weekly Standard warned of the coming of the super predators, was by the end of the 90s declaring in the Wall Street Journal that two million prisoners are enough. Sadly, nobody was listening. So far as, yet so far, there is insufficient political momentum to for getting out of the mass incarceration business in America, the policy throttle seems to be stuck. How could imprisonment rates continue to rise while crime rates were falling so sharply? This happened for one simple reason, because we have become progressively more punitive. The criminologist at Carnegie Mellon, Alfred Bloomstein, with a colleague, analyzed the factors contributing to growth in incarceration over the period 1980 to 1996. Candidate explanations considered were more crime, more arrest per crime, more commitment to prison per arrest, and longer time served, including parole commitment. Bloomstein summarized the findings in this study as follows, I quote, it turns out that none of the growth was attributable to more crime, and there was no change in arrest per crime. The growth was entirely attributable to growth in punitiveness about equally to growth in prison commitments per arrest, tougher prosecution and judicial sentencing, and to longer time served per sentence. Longer sentences, elimination of parole, greater readiness to uh, recommit parolees to prison uh, for technical violations of new crimes or new crimes. One of the most important recent sources, uh, Bloomstein says, of growth in prison population is the level of recommitment of parolees. Parole boards have received the same political message um, uh, that they ought to also become tougher. They have been more aggressive in delaying release decisions, in performing urinalysis on parolees, and in making recommitments for violations. Thus, throughout the period 1980 to 2001, just under half of complaints to police resulted in arrest, but the chance that an arrest would result in prison roughly doubled from 13 to 28%. 
Time served in prison by violent offenders also increased significantly from an average of 33 months in 1980 to 53 months by 2001. Because time served and the rate of prison admission both increased, the incarceration rate for violent crime rose from 76 per 100,000 to 208 per 100,000 over that period, despite the decline in violence. Um, Uh, this table shows you the trends in sentencing uh, patterns across the various states, the numbers which in 1980 had sentencing guidelines uh, constricting what uh, judges could um, give as sentences or which had abolished or limited parole, uh, which had three strike laws, which was none, uh, or truth and sentencing laws which require that an uh, offender serve a certain minimal percentage of the time to which they've been sentenced. And you can see that the trend in these dimensions of the uh, severity of punishment has been nothing but straight up in terms of the number of states who have adopted these, um, these various mechanisms. So despite a precipitate decline in the objective risk of victimization, today's practice of criminal justice has just become meaner and less caring than it has been at any other time in American history. The emphasis has shifted, as Garland puts it, from a welfareist to a punitive modality. And it seems to have gotten stuck there. <clears throat> Sentencing law and practice give greater priority to retributive, incapacitative, and deterrent aims. Probation presents itself as punishment in the community, not as a social work alternative to conviction. Juvenile courts in the US routinely waive young offenders up to adult court for harsher sentencing while they increasingly stress guilt and individual responsibility. And just whose fault is it, I ask you, when a 15-year-old threatens us with a gun? Whose failure is it? Yeah, it's the 15-year-old's failure. Yes, it's his family's failure. Does that exhaust the category? Are we done with responsibility accounting when 15-year-olds walk our cities with guns? It's on them, end of statement? Custodial institutions for young people have increasingly become indistinguishable from adult prisons in one state after other around, these country, around this country. The penal code has become more punitive, more expressive, more security-minded. Offenders are now less likely to be represented in official discourse as socially deprived citizens in need of support. They are depicted instead as culpable, undeserving, and somewhat dangerous individuals who must be carefully controlled for the protection of the public and the prevention of further offending. Rather than clients in need of support, I quote Garland here, they are seen as risks who must be managed. Instead of emphasizing rehabilitation that meets an offender's needs, the system emphasizes effective controls that minimize cost and maximize security. Felons are no longer persons to be supported. They are simply risk who must be dealt with. In fact, it has become hard even to think about a felon as a person who should be supported. In fact, run for any office in the land and utter that sentence, and you're completely discredited. Here stands another human being, my brother, my sister. Yes, they have offended, and yes, they are with us. It's our problem together. Let's see where to go from here. Utter that sentence. You can forget about it. Felons are no longer people. They're risks. They're not us, persons with whom we share community. They're them, alien and threatening objects of social approbation. They are stigmatized. 
they are fit subjects for shaming. And when they're... We're going we're gonna to affix a severe penalty for that. <laughs> That's all right, Claude. I had that coming from what I did before we started. <laughs> Felons are no longer persons. They're them, alien, objects of social approbation. They are the stigmatized. They are the fit subjects of shaming. We got law professors at Yale who are arguing we're not shaming our prisoners enough. The problem with probation is that they don't wear stripes. That's ad hominem, but it's actually accurate. I mean, it's an accurate characterization of what was argued in this article. But there is an argument there that I'm not doing justice to, so I apologize to Professor Kahan. And when this othering process takes on a racial valence, we may expect the stigmatizing effects to be especially powerful since they resonate and, with and echo the powerfully violent American history of racial degradation. I speak here of the history of lynching throughout this country and well into the last century. And the racially biased policing and judging in the South under Jim Crow, which was legion. This historical resonance between the stigma of imprisonment and the stigma of race serves to keep alive in our public culture the subordinating social meanings that have always been associated with blackness. The young political scientist Vesla May Weaver has just completed her dissertation at Harvard in which looking at poli uh, political history, uh, public opinion, media processes and so forth, she attempts to understand the role that race may have played in this criminal justice transformation. She argues quite persuasively to my mind that reaction against civil rights was displaced into a separate policy process such that, and I quote her, Punitive policy intervention was not merely an exercise in crime fighting, it both responded to and moved the agenda on racial equality, close quote. She calls her, con her core concept front lash, by which she means a process where formerly defeated groups, that is those who opposed the civil rights advocacy, uh, but unable to prevail against the liberal zeitgeist, those groups, uh, uh, their preferences become dominant by shifting to a new issue. Rather than reacting directly against civil rights development, she argues, anti-black politics, like the politics animating George Wallace's campaigns for the presidency, which drew so much support in states like Michigan and Wisconsin, were embedded into a seemingly race-neutral concern over crime. Let me quote once more from Vesla May Weaver's fine dissertation. Once the clutch of Jim Crow had loosened, opponents of civil rights shifted the locus of attack by injecting crime onto the agenda. Through the process of front lash, rivals of civil rights progress defined racial discord as criminal. Remember, the cities were burning in the 1960s and argued that crime legislation would be a panacea to racial unrest. This strategy both imbued crime with race and depoliticized racial struggle, a formula which foreclosed earlier root cause alternative arguments about how to manage the problem of crime. Fusing anxiety about crime to anxiety over racial change and riot, civil rights and racial disorder, initially defined as a problem of minority disenfranchisement, got redefined as a crime problem which helped shift the debate from social reform to punishment, close quote. 
Now, of course, this argument for which Weaver adduces considerable circumstantial evidence is speculative. I understand that. It would be difficult to prove such a thing. But somewhat interest, something interesting does seem to have been happening in the late 1960s regarding the relationship between attitudes on race and social policy. This figure demonstrates that the public attitudes on welfare and on race varying year to year in a manner that was essentially statistically independent of one another prior to 1970. Note that that correlation coefficient over the period 1950 to 1965 is 0.03. But public attitudes as expressed in the general social survey and measured by some index of liberalness on race and on welfare policy moved in tandem with one another in the period from 1960 to 1996, 66 to 96, when the correlation coefficient between those two series is 0.68. The association in the American mind of race and welfare and of race with crime has been achieved at a common historical moment. Crime control institutions are part of a larger social policy complex. They relate to and interact with labor market, family, welfare efforts, health and social work activities. Indeed, David Garland has argued that the ideological approaches to welfare and crime control have marched rightward to a common beat. Quoting him, the institutional and cultural changes that have occurred in the crime control field are analogous to those that have occurred in the welfare state more generally, close quote. We have ended welfare as we once knew it, just as we have decided to lock them up and throw away the key. We are demanding personal responsibility and insisting on accountability across the board. These changes, according to David Garland, can be understood as a kind of counter-rhetoric. Quote, the infrastructures of the welfare state have not been abolished or utterly transformed. They have been overlaid by a different political culture and directed by a new style of public management. In the process, they have become more restrictive and means-tested, more concerned to control the conduct of claimants, more concerned to transmit the right incentives and to discourage dependency. They are about governing people at close quarters. They are ever vigilant for signs of laxity in their clients. Like the criminal justice reforms, current policies are shaped by the perceived dysfunctions and pathologies of the institutions of the welfare state, close quote. Current policies are also shaped, I might add, by the perceived dysfunction of the racially marked subjects of these policies. Consider as one final example, because I know this is getting long, the tortured history of the war on drugs. Blacks were twice as likely as whites to be arrested for drug offenses in 1975, but four times as likely, 1,460 per 100,000 versus 365 per 100,000 by 1989. For all of the 1990s, drug arrests remained at an historically unprecedented level. Yet according to the National Survey of Drug Abuse, drug use among adults fell but from 20% in 1979 to 11% in 2000. A similar trend occurred for adolescents. In age groups 12 to 17 and 18 to 25, the usage of marijuana, cocaine, and heroin all peaked at roughly the same time in the late 1970s and began a steady decline thereafter. Thus, a decline in drug use across the board had begun a decade before the war on drugs was really initiated. Bruce Western presents interesting evidence on racial discrepancies in, um, um, between drug use and drug arrest. 
Here in this figure, you can see that um, uh, the drug use by high school seniors um, who are white, those are the open circles, is systematically higher than drug use by high school seniors uh, who, are, who are black. And in this figure, sorry, I don't seem to have that figure. In a figure that I ought to have had, <laughs> you can see the drug arrest for, oh, I see in the preceding figure it was shown there. In the preceding figure, you can see the big difference in arrest rates for blacks and whites. That's what I'm trying to point to. The top line is the ratio. It's never below two, and it rises up to four by the peak in the late 1980s of black-white drug arrest. And here is the uh, pattern of high school drug use. Now, it has to be said here that this can be misleading because the distribution of the use of drugs is not uniform in the population. A relatively few heavy users are going to account for a big chunk of drug use. So it could still be true that blacks are disproportionately represented amongst heavy drug users, but my point is that the general plague or problem of drug use in American society is driven not by a racial minority, but is driven by patterns of drug use that are really quite ecumenical across racial lines. Um, you can see what happened with the war on drugs in this table that I'm showing you right now. This is uh, with uh, 1980 at a baseline of 100, showing you the growth rate in percentage terms of um, arrest and state prison commitments by type of crime. And that top line uh, shows what has happened to um, incarceration rates for people who are drug offenders. And yet, are we winning the war on drugs? It's a fair question to ask. <clears throat> As these data make clear, retail prices on the street of illicit drugs fell steadily through the period 1980 to 2000, with the exception of methamphetamine, which is the line that shows a price spike in the late 1980s and then comes down. But all those other downward sloping lines are the best that the analysts at the Rand Corporation can figure as to what the price on the street of quality controlled price on the street of, uh, of uh, heroin, uh, cocaine, and um, uh, uh, heroin and cocaine might be. Uh, that dashed line going up is emergency room admissions in which drug use is mentioned as part of the malady. That solid line going up, as you know already, are uh, drug uh, inmates in prison. <clears throat> so the price of drugs has been getting cheaper. The number of people in, drugs in uh, prison for um, selling drugs has been going through the roof. This, and I will close is, uh, with, uh, with this, is an analysis of the epidemiology of incarceration in the city of New York by the criminologist at Columbia Law School, Jeffrey Fagan. Uh, let me preface with this. What all this comes to is that to save our middle class kids from a threat of their being engulfed by a drug epidemic that might not have even existed by the time drug incarceration actually began its rapid rise in the 80s, we have criminalized our underclass kids. To save our middle class kids, we have criminalized our underclass kids. Arrests went up and up, drug prices went down and down, and drug consumption seems not to have been much impacted by the policy. An interesting case in point is New York City, where this criminologist, Jeffrey Fagan, and his colleagues have analyzed data on arrest in New York City's residential neighborhoods and police precincts. They report that 70%, I don't know if you can read that, the left-hand panel is a map of the various um, neighborhoods of New York City colored by the intensity of incarceration rates of persons who happen to live in those places in 1985. The right-hand panel is a comparable map in 1996. Red is the most intense uh, incidence of incarceration. 
followed by black and then uh, darker to lighter shades of gray. Uh, you can see the heavy spatial concentration and the growth in the character of the intensity of incarceration through these neighborhoods uh, in New York City. Um, now, uh, Fagan reports in that uh, article that 70% of state inmates in the state of New York come from New York City, from these very neighborhoods that we're looking at. Between 1990, and this is why I say, we're motivated by a desire to protect our kids from a malady that's out there. But what we do criminalizes their kids in there. We have alternatives. We don't have to lock them up. <clears throat> we don't have to make drugs illegal either, but believe me, that's a whole nother Tanner lecture. <laughs> Between 1990 and 2003, the number of state prison inmates, 70% of whom come from New York City, the number of inmates who came out of uh, New York City rose from 55,000 to 70,000. The city also had an average daily jail population of 18,000 in 1999. Quoting from the article, rates of incarceration in New York City have been largely unaffected by the city's dramatic decline in crime. Moreover, the increase in incarceration is in part attributable to ingress, aggressive enforcement of drug laws, especially street-level enforcement, resulting in large numbers of felony arrests of retail drug sellers. They note that, quote, drug-related offenses have, have accounted for an increasing proportion of prison admissions, up from 12% of state prison admissions in 1985 to 31% in 1990 to 38% in 1996. Some 11,600 residents of New York entered the New York State prison system on drug-related offenses in 1996. 11,600 residents of these neighborhoods that we're looking at in New York City in one year were put in state prison for drug offenses. As the map below makes clear, incarceration was highest in the city's poorest neighborhoods, though these were not in every instance the neighborhoods where crime rates were highest. Most interestingly, when these data are analyzed at the level of police precincts, the authors discovered a perverse positive feedback of incarceration on crime. Higher incarceration in a given neighborhood seemed, after controlling for other variables, to predict higher crime rates one year later in that neighborhood. Now, you have to be careful with crime statistics because a lot of stuff is endogenous, and police behavior is an important part of the question here. So you, causality is not identified here. Okay. Nevertheless, um, the authors concluded that the growth and persistence of incarceration over time were due primarily to drug enforcement and to sentencing laws that required imprisonment for repeat offenders. Police scrutiny was more intensive and less forgiving in neighborhoods with high incarceration rates. And parolees returning to such neighborhoods were more likely to be more closely monitored and to be violated and sent back to prison. This discretionary spatially discriminatory police behavior led to a high and increasing rate of repeat prison admissions in the designated neighborhoods, even as the crime rates were falling there. The authors conclude that, and I quote, incarceration begets more incarceration, and incarceration also begets more crime, which in turn invites more aggressive enforcement, which then resupplies incarceration. They identify three mechanisms as contributing to the reinforcement of incarceration in these neighborhoods. The declining economic fortunes of former inmates, the effects on neighborhoods where they uh, tend to reside, and the effects on neighborhoods where they tend to reside, resource and relationship strains on families of prisoners that 
weaken the family's ability to supervise children, and voter disenfranchisement that weakens the political economy of neighborhoods. Now, looking ahead, in closing, permit me to briefly preview what is to come tomorrow afternoon. I'm going to try to make a normative argument, applying the rational choice style of reasoning that is natural to an economist. So watch out. <laughs> Using a series of formal models, that is, hypothetical thought experiments which highlight selected aspects of complex social interaction, I will try to show the limits of an ethic of personal responsibility by highlighting the extent to which a person's actions, including their law-breaking actions, are shaped by social forces beyond their control. With a Rawlsian perspective on distributive justice, but now in respect to the distribution not of wealth and income, but instead of the negative good of punishment, I intend to invoke the notion of moral luck made famous by Bernard Williams and Thomas Nagel. While we may be responsible for what we do, what we do depends on a great many factors over which we have no control. So evidently, we are not responsible for what we are and are not responsible for. I will emphasize that closed and bounded social structures like racially homogeneous urban ghettos create contexts where pathological and dysfunctional cultural forms emerge. But these forms are not, I will argue, intrinsic to the people caught in these structures, nor are they independent of the behavior of those who reside outside of them. Thank you. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.